Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confession and our boasting in our hope. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We just praise you for your word, and we're so grateful to have it. We're so grateful to be here today, to be able to worship you freely, to learn. So I just pray that you would anoint Grant with your spirit, that you'd help us to understand what the Holy Spirit wants to teach us, and I pray that you would comfort us and exhort us and build us up by your word and help us to um, please you today, Father. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you, my friend Steve. Very, very kind of you to lead us in that scripture. What a beautiful word, huh? What a beautiful prayer. Well, I, it is good to be in the pulpit this morning. I was away last week, and, um, you know, what a, what a neat reminder that uh, the Lord is faithful to not just, uh, not just me. I'm going to turn on my fan here. I'm sweating. Um, but, uh, but to us as a church, Michael doing a great job leading the Hugos, leading worship, just a great service, and I appreciate I appreciate the opportunity to, to be away occasionally and to know that Jesus is going to be proclaimed as Lord and King. At the top of your section in um, the ESV, in the, the section Steve just read to us, it starts with Jesus greater than Moses. That's the, the title that the editors of the ESV have, have chosen, and probably yours says something similar. And while there's a lot of meat on those bones, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about the ways that Moses is greater than, or that Jesus is greater than Moses. In part, I probably have some supporters of that theory in the room. Probably it would not be hard for us. In fact, uh, this week, not just on Wednesday nights, but on Tuesday nights, there's a group on Wednesday night, on Thursday night, find a small group and go to it. Um, We'll, we'll maybe spend some time brainstorming, and we will here in the sermon too, just thinking in what ways is Jesus greater than Moses? And I bet right now you can make a list of several things. Um, and yet there's, there's something else embedded in here. I'd like to think long and hard about why that is a comparison that's so important to this first reader. Now, obviously, 
the first reader of the book of Hebrews thought a lot more about Moses than you and I do. And so to compare Jesus to Moses was a huge thing. But still, this is the kind of passage that I worry we get so wrapped up in thinking theologically that we neglect to think missiologically. That we neglect the idea that this is not just something we're supposed to think about and know, but this is telling us something we should be like, something we should be doing. The first word um, is therefore, and, and therefore we talk about a lot, and we should notice it every time it's, it, it's there in the Bible. It's a wonderful connection word. Many times it is reminding you that the argument that the author, especially in Paul, the, author, the, the argument that the author is going to, to launch into is connected to the argument that he has just been giving. And that's true in this. It's been a lot of information about Jesus. Jesus is the son. He's the only begotten son. Jesus is the king. Jesus is better than the angels. The, the new law in Christ is better than the old law. We've, we've, we've spent a lot of time in the first two chapters really digging into who Jesus is. And so this, therefore, is building on the idea presupposing that you are all in on the supremacy of Jesus in the universe. And I think, again, in a room like this, that's, that's pandering. That's downright, you know, how to get an amen if you need one. Jesus is king. Amen. Yeah, there we go. Um, that's, that's probably, that's, that, that we're, we're preaching to the choir uh, in, uh, in that idea. And so this next thing that the author is going to say is going to be built on that. But this, therefore, is a little bit different than other therefores because it's not just, therefore, let me tell you about this other theological thing, but it's rather, therefore, you should change the way you're living. Jesus is king. Therefore, you need to think about how you live in light of that. And it would be easy to miss because, quite frankly, the part about how Jesus is greater than Moses in this passage, a little bit confusing. Like the language is difficult and the, the, there's something about building a house and what house did Moses build and what are we talking about now? And, and, and there's stuff and we'll try to detangle that a little bit as we go. But there is very simple information in the first verse and the last verse of this passage that I want to spend most of our time talking about. That is, if, if we leave a passage like this only thinking, well, I wonder how I feel about that theologically, we have not been rightly offended by the word of God. We need to say, really, in light of all that we covered in verses in chapters one and two, in light of who Jesus is, how could I walk away from the knowledge of Jesus as the supreme king of the universe and be the same? How could tomorrow resemble yesterday at all if I have met and have fallen at the, face, at the feet of the king of the universe? And you know, it's easy to get tripped up in a passage like this. This is going to happen over and over as we go through Hebrews because for most people, the most theologically challenging thing about Hebrews is that there are all these warning passages. Don't fall away. Don't turn aside. Once you've tasted this and turn away, it's worse than if you were never a believer in the beginning. And we really want to work that out emotionally as like from our culture in an in and out kind of American kind of Western civilization kind of way. We really want to know what's going on there. And we'll dig into it a little bit today and we'll get to it more as we go. But all of these warning passages, there's this idea where it seems like you can both have a history with Jesus and be at risk 
in your relationship to Jesus in the future. And that is just bonkers to our ears. Like, that is just, we don't like the sound of that at all. And part of that is because we are more excited to think about our identity in Christ than we are about our responsibility in Christ. We want to argue about whether or not I am still a Christian. Can I put on my name tag? Oh, dude, I forgot a name tag today. Sorry. I'm Grant. Um, can I put it on? Can I identify as a Christian? Can I say I am one? Can I say that I, I grew up in a Christian home? Can I say that I, I read the Bible once? Can I say that I went to youth group and even a mission trip once? Does that qualify? Can I just say I'm a Christian now forever? Yeah, but your life is sinful. You're rude to people and your vices are out of control and you're, you're, you're cheating the tax guy and you're lying to your wife and like there's no christian anything in this. And you want to go, yeah, 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 but once saved, always saved. So you want the identity, not you, other people. You want the identity in Christ but not the responsibility in Christ. And as we come up to all of these warning passages in Hebrews, we're gonna have to keep coming back to that. The author of Hebrews is not particularly concerned with um, you know, the, the card you got from your Sunday school teacher that said little Grant gave his heart to Jesus today. Not that, it, it, impressed by that. Rather, the author of Hebrews wants to go look at your life. You tell me whether you're a Christian or not. Are you on mission to change your life? What's your purpose for waking up tomorrow? This is how you know whether you're a Christian. When it's working right, identity and responsibility always go together. We say things like this a lot around here, that identity leads to mission. Emil Buner, um, I, wrote, I read a, a, a book of his when I was at what is now Vanguard University as a, you know, sophomore Bible student, and um, the book changed my perspective forever and still has, and the kind of the punchline of the book says, and you've heard me say this before, um, says, a church exists by mission as fire exists by burning. There's no such thing as a fire that's not burning. There's no such thing as a church that's not on mission. There's no such thing as a Christian who is not on mission. And you go, no, 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 no. I'm having a rough patch of my life right now, but, you know, I still believe all the things. The fire, this pile of woods might really believe in fire. But if it is not flaming, it is not a fire. And I think the author of Hebrews and the New Testament writers in general, this is not specific to Hebrews, A question like, can you lose your salvation, would have been kind of a silly premise, a false dichotomy. Asking, can I have my identity in Christ, but not be on mission with Christ? We used to put it like this. I heard this in churches, you know, my whole life. Well, that person's made Jesus their Savior, but not their Lord. Nope, not a thing. Say yes to my wife on our wedding day, and then go live a life totally apart from her and uh, pursuing other girls? Am I married? What a ridiculous question. Well, you want the badge? You want the title? Fine. Call yourself whatever you want. But if you're not burning, you're not on fire. 
Can I be in an orchestra without playing an instrument? Can I have a beautiful home but never clean it? Can I be a scholar but never read a book or listen to a lecture? Can I be a surfer but never get in the water? In Southern California, I've told you this before, growing up in Southern California, we have people, jams, TNC surf design t-shirt, maybe even own a surfboard, racks on the car, never go surfing. You know what you call that person? A poser, not a surfer. In fact, they irritate other surfers. You can call yourself these things. You can tell people that these things are your identity, but you can't be these things unless you do these things. So we need to talk about who you are in Christ. And then we need to talk about who Christ is. And then we'll spend a little bit of time talking about our mission. But I, I'm going to say this here again in a minute. I think if you really know who Jesus is and you really know who you are, your mission flows out of that pretty naturally. The word that's going to be used in scriptures today is calling. And from pulpits all across the world for all time, the word calling has been used to try to get people to serve in churches. <laughs> What's your calling? What are you supposed to be doing to make my life easier? I don't need you to make my life easier. What I need is for each one of us to attach ourselves to the calling that Christ has so obviously put in our lives. And maybe that means you need to sell everything and go to the mission field. And maybe it means you need to go to seminary and, and plant a church. But maybe it need, means you need to stay right where you are and just be the on-fire missional version of you right in the middle of your mundane life. In fact, I guarantee it starts with that. So first, identity. We got to know who we are. And it's easy to miss. It's such a, it almost is like, like a Bible sounding, what's up, Holmes, or hey, dog, or something like this at, at the beginning of verse one. It just says, therefore, holy brothers. Don't get, don't get freaked out about brothers. It means siblings, brothers and sisters. You are Holy. If I spent the rest of the time just talking about what it means that we are holy, said amen and left, I think the, the point of the message would be clear. You are holy if you're in Christ. You'll notice that holiness here is not connected on the front end to behavior, but it is on the back end, if that's the way to say it. We are not holy because of our behavior. Rather, we express holy behavior because we are first declared holy by God. It is Christ's actions, not ours, that won our holiness. Are you with me? By holy, it does not mean, and this is the thing that, that is pretty, especially for a young Christian, I think it's easy to do. We say, okay, now I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus, and I, you know, there's old Christians who haven't shaken this. And so since my identity is in Christ, then everything I think is correct because I'm a Christian. That's a very unchristian thing to say. A Christian idea is, man, I know I have to capture every thought and bring it to Jesus. I know there's nothing good in me. If it doesn't start with the Holy Spirit, I probably should keep my mouth shut. 
Holiness doesn't mean that our thinking is right or all of the things we do are right, but what it does mean is that we are part of a family that finds its identity in God. So if you think holiness means behavior first, then to be holy, you have to say everything that you do is holy. You have to say, because I call myself a Christian, this is the right way to drive and this is the right things to cheer for, and this is the right person to vote for, and this is the right way to do family, this is the right way to educate our kids, because everything I do must be holy. The Bible says I'm holy, but that is misunderstanding what holiness is altogether. Rather, holiness is an identity that comes before our works, before anything we do. It is simply our identity as the children of God, holy brothers and sisters. When a baby is born to a king, they will announce Behold, the next king of wherever. Now, that baby has not done anything. That baby has not earned anything. That baby has not, I mean, maybe that baby is an idiot. Let's be true. There's a grand spectrum of IQ. Maybe this one doesn't have it. But he's the future king because of his identity with his family. It is, it is that he is a child of the king that makes him holy, that makes him set apart. That's true of you on your spiritual birthday too. You remember it was Jesus who likened becoming a believer to being born again. And as we are born again, we don't go, ah, I'm born again, now I'm on the Jesus team, so I wield my opinion with the you know, strength of Jesus argument. No, it's actually the opposite of that. You get born again and you go, whew, I gotta grow. I gotta mature. I gotta learn what it means to be in this family how to be holy. But even before we act holy, we are holy. Holy brothers and sisters, the author of Hebrews says. This will continue to be a theme in the book, but let's highlight it here. You are not holy by yourself. You cannot bear the image of God by yourself. Now, truly, if you're stranded on the desert island all by yourself, you, the image of God did not flee from you, but the image of God was meant to exist in the interaction between people, even more specifically, the interaction between men and women. We're supposed to live so differently, treat each other so differently than the rest of the world that people are supposed to look at the way we interact and go, oh, that's what God's like. You cannot be holy by yourself. I was, we were singing about mansions earlier, and there's mansions in glory, and I think, isn't it a very Western thing to think you'll have your own mansion all by yourself in heaven? Like, like the idea we have of heaven is like basketball court, tennis court, batting cage, seven rooms, uh, Tron machine, uh, stand-up Tron video game machine, like you 2 plays a concert on my front lawn every day. You know what I mean? Like, we build this very self-centered version of what paradise would look like, when actually even what Jesus said when he's talking about mansions is more a, re, a, a reference to what's still going on in Middle Eastern cultures where there's a huge mansion and the whole family lives there together. Here's a room for you. You belong here, collectively, together. And we have this idea that holiness, it, the, the end result might be that we would be sectioned off and holy all by ourselves. You know why you have to come to church? Because people are tough to deal with. <laughs> the person in your pew has a tough to deal with person sitting next to them. And this is how we are holy. That we are not in a 
holy, you know, tent by ourselves, but rather we get together and treat each other differently than the rest of the world treats each other. You can't be holy by yourself. Holy brothers and sisters, this is your identity, which means we are the heir of a shared inheritance. It also means you're connected to believers in a way that can't be avoided. It is a family relationship. Again, this is going to have a lot to do with how we act in the kingdom, but identity comes first. You are family, a holy family. And it seems to me if we really understood our identity that our calling would be pretty self-explanatory instead of agonizing over like, what's my calling? What's my spot in the kingdom, God? We would wake up and go, look at all these people. It's obvious that getting along, that extending love, that extending forgiveness. If you're in a marriage, yeah, how hard that is? Pray for Tiffany. This is the calling to not do this like the rest of the world does this. Are you in a job? Have you noticed there's a difference between you and the way you view the world and the way your coworkers view the world? Well, what else is your calling except to live out kingdom identity there in your job? But many want identity in Christ without the calling of Christ. We want a self-centered calling. We want a calling that we could stand in a pulpit as a visiting speaker at a church and go, when God called me, there I was. And then I went and did amazing things and God is so lucky to have me. Rather, with the crown comes a cross. And we want the crown. We want to deny the cross. Identity responsibility, who you are, what we do, identity, mission. So let's talk about our calling, our responsibility. Not only should we know uh, who we are, uh, we should know what it is we're called to do. And again, I, I'm, I'm not, it's going to take me a while to leave verse one. Therefore, holy brothers, we've gotten three words in so far. You, um, you who share in a heavenly calling, so what do you know about your calling? First of all, it's something you share. Some of your Bibles might even use the word this calling in which you partake. Partake is a great word. Like there is a, a, a calling out there and you partake of it. You have a piece of it, right? You, you get a pizza for dinner. You don't all individually have your own thing. Rather, it's one thing that everybody in the family partakes of this one thing. You get your slice of it. It's something that is a, is a big thing that is external from you, but you get to partake of it, ingest it, and let it move you through the world. This is the shared calling that Jesus has called us to. You can't do it alone. It's a collective calling. This is so frustrating because really I just want to be right and have people listen to me. That's not actually true. But our calling is wrapped up in the way we treat each other. Fire exists by burning like the church exists by mission. There is no calling yourself a Christian and not being forgiving. 
There is no calling yourself a Christian and not extending grace. There is no calling yourself a Christian and then turning over and over to sinful practices with no guilt, no um, uh, confession, just like going and living a, a worldly life and then being like, well, when I was a kid, I got saved. That's not, that's not being a Christian. We live in such an individualistic culture and it's tough for us to even think this way, but a first century reader would never think of his calling as something that could happen outside his network of family, friends, business associates, and people. They just had a more collectivist idea of the world. My calling would be things for me to do as an individual, but it would always be in the context of the people of God. So many times, you know, we like the hero's journey. Is that model? You know, the hero's journey and you got to go. And there's some, like it's a model. It's something to, to think about, especially if you like studying literature and stuff. But the idea that you should leave to find your calling is not a biblical idea. Rather, it's that God would call you right where you are with the knuckleheads you already know that you might be the way the kingdom principles of grace, forgiveness, and love are, are, are um, uh, expanded in the place where you already are. Your calling didn't start with you. The calling we are partaking in, that we are shared in, it started in the heavens. Did you see that? And we'll end there too. The mission has been going on before you got here. It will continue after you are gone. God is doing something world. It is God's mission. He is the one working. And he will accomplish what he desires to accomplish. It is not all resting on you. But we are not the founders of our mission. We are the partakers of our mission. Do you see the difference? You are not waiting for a great idea. And if God calls you to something unusual, praise the Lord. You'll work it out when you get there. It'll be through prayer and community, and, and you'll, you'll figure that out, and we'll figure that out with you when you get there. But our calling always begins with understanding that we are partakers of a mission that Jesus started, that Jesus called us to. That makes a huge difference in trying to figure out what I'm supposed to do in the world. No longer do I go, why am I here? And this is tough too. It's so tough as you go through different stages of life. It's like you don't answer what is my, um, what's my purpose in the world. You don't answer that once, do you? As seasons change, you go, well, I knew my purpose, but it feels like that came to an end or feels like it's different with this new season of my life. And if you think that you finding the one thing that God would have you do, and it has to be amazing, and it has to be um, super public, and it has to be all I mean, your life is going to be nothing but going, oh no, now I need a new calling. But if you have this idea of holy brothers, you are partakers of a shared heavenly calling. Well, that is going to be the same in each of your, it's going to look a little different, but that's going to be the same in every life stage you know just one more quick story about that when i was a kid i got hired at barrow's pizza it, it was great yeah um and i was a dishwasher working my way up to pizza maker and uh so um i didn't feel passionate about making pizzas uh as much as i felt passionate about getting money and then potentially eating pizzas um but I just want you to think of how ridiculous it would have been if that first day when some other 15-year-old was sick, so I got to graduate to Pizza Maker, 
Um, if I went out there and I was like, look, I have a vision. I have a calling. It's hot dogs. I'm going to be the hot dog maker here at Barrow's Pizza. Do you see how ridiculous that would have been? The, the lady that, that um, owned it would have said, look, we are paying you $4.35 an hour. And for that $4.35, you get on board with the mission of Barrow's Pizza. You don't sit here and decide what you want to do standing at this counter. You make pizzas. We need to have a little more of an idea of that when it comes to our heavenly calling too. Forgiveness, grace, sacrifice. This is the mission. Second, your calling is heavenly. This is tough for us because our mission, our purpose, at least for now, is lived on earth. It's really, I mean, the kingdom of God breaks through all the time, but generally speaking, the kingdom of God's invisible, and that's a real problem. <laughs> it would be easier if there was a land we could move to. If there was an island, then we'd be like, I became a Christian, I'm headed to the Jesus island. That'd be easier. But rather, we have to live it here. But this is an incredibly important idea. Jesus came to announce the kingdom of heavens had drawn near, that another kingdom was invading the kingdom of earth. At the Sermon on the Mount, he said that the kingdom of heavens would be available, even populated by the poor in spirit, the, the you know kind of collection of ragtag jokers that had gathered way up in Galilee, far away from Jerusalem. At the triumphal entry, like what we celebrate on Palm Sunday, Jesus uh, enters as a king, like uh, presenting himself as an arriving king, ready to take his rightful place. In the Great Commission, he tells his disciples to go to every nation and baptize people into this heavenly kingdom. Our mission is to expand the kingdom of heaven on earth. That's our mission. Seek first the kingdom of God. And God will add all the earthly stuff to you. Fill the earth. You remember the first command of people? Multiply. And then the command of uh, the, the new covenant, the Jesus command is go and fill the earth. Again, multiply disciples. Spend our time on earth expanding the rule and reign of the kingdom of the heavens. Our context might be earthly, but our mission, our calling is heavenly. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, it, it's worth kind of thinking through. How do the kingdoms of earth expand? The kingdoms of earth expand through economic prowess and power and wealth and influence and fear and violence. How does the kingdom of heaven expand? May we never use kingdom of earth principles in order to try to expand the kingdom of heaven. Rather, the kingdom of heaven, Paul said, we don't use weapons like everybody else. Rather, the kingdom of heaven expands with grace, mercy, forgiveness, kindness, obedience, proclamation of Jesus as king, sacrifice, martyrdom. This is how the kingdom of heaven has always expanded in the kingdom of earth. Well, this is a little bit confusing. At least it might have been for the first readers. And so as the, the author is writing this and wants these people to, to really latch on to their calling, he says, well, consider Jesus. You want to know what it looks like? Well, go look at Jesus. Consider Jesus. 
He is the apostle of our confession. This idea about confession is going to come up over and over in Hebrews as well, that we have a confession. And most scholars think that that has something to do with early formulations of the gospel, like we see in 1 Corinthians 15. For I, we read this a lot. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That is the gospel. That is our confession. Jesus was the apostle. Apostle just means sent one. So Jesus was sent to tell us about the forgiveness of sins through his death and resurrection. The, the first like charismatic proclamation, the first thing Christians ever said was Jesus is king. Victory over death. This is the message Jesus came to give. He is the apostle of our confession. He is also the high priest of our confession. Man, this had to be salve to Hebrew souls as they looked at the high priesthood in Jerusalem and was like, they don't represent me at all. <coughs> you ever feel like that? Who represents me in all this mess? Well, the high priest is supposed to. Jesus is the high priest of our confession, the one who administers the sacrifice, the one who represents humanity before God. The author would say, if you want to know the purpose of your life, if you want to know what your calling is, put your eyes on Jesus. He is the founder of the kingdom, the one who exemplifies the mission, the responsibility, the behavior, the calling. Can you imagine if Jesus came down and said, my identity is God and did nothing to save us? No, rather, it was his work that flowed out of his identity that saved us. It should be our work that flows out of our identity in him that expands his kingdom on earth. When we consider Jesus, the stuff Jesus does, as we put on his character, as we act like him, that is the calling. The author can... The author the continues, says, consider the faithfulness of Jesus. And then verses 2 and 6 have all this stuff about Moses. And let's just read it again, and I'll just have a comment or two. Consider the faithfulness of Jesus, who was faithful to him who has appointed him, just as Moses was faithful to all God's house. God's house. He's referring to the people of Israel, but also there's this allusion to the tabernacle. Like G Moses did build a tabernacle. Moses established Israel as a nation and established the tabernacle as the place where God um, would reside within that nation, put God's house in the center of it. So both those things are in view. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. You might look at a house that is made by a, a, a famous architect. You may go, oh, this is really amazing. But if that architect wandered in, you would no longer be thinking about the house you would want to talk with him. Moses was only the superintendent. Jesus was the builder. For every house is built by someone. And Jesus... And the, the author here is writing to these Hebrew people, and they have to think, well, who built this house? Was it Moses? Well, yeah, but in a much deeper way, it was Jesus. Verse 5, 
Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that uh, were to be spoken of later. It's pretty easy, at least for me, to go, was Moses faithful? Like Moses made mistakes, right? Yeah, and the author will get to that. But really, the thing you want to latch on here to is the word servant. Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. That was his role. He was a servant of God. And built on the argument from chapters 1 and 2, we go, Jesus wasn't a servant. Jesus was what? A son. And a servant in a house and a son in a house are different things. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house. Again, talking about like we're like Israel was in the old covenant. We are the people of God. Also, we are the, like the tabernacle was in the old covenant. We are the residing, the resting place of the presence of God on earth. And if that doesn't inspire you to be on mission, I don't know what will. Then in verse 6, there's this really troublesome word. And those of us that, you know, borderline on fatalism and think it's all just exactly like God wants, I'm in. I look, I don't have the brain power to work all this out. Um, it would take us a long conversation and I would bore you to tears, but we're going to have to hold these truths in tension. God in his sovereignty is not surprised by anything. At the same time, over and over in scriptures, we have sentences like, if, okay, but Christ was faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if, indeed, we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. We're challenged. What do you mean if? Are you saying that the, the place in the kingdom of heaven is earned? No, not earned by us, at least it was earned by Christ. Are we saying that if we slip up in sin, if we have seasons of doubt, that it will lose our place in the kingdom of heaven? No, not at all. However, it is a reminder that identity and responsibility go together. That who you are and what you do have to match. That one thing proves the other. That you being on mission is how you are going to know what it is you are. Hold fast to our confidence. Our confidence was never in us. I'm not confident in Grant at all. What a dumb idea that would be. That we hold fast to our confidence in Christ. That we boast not in the hope of anything on earth. We're not boasting in the hope of our intelligence or our social connections or our, you know, anything that we think is going to happen in the world uh, over the next months or years, but rather our hope is in Christ, in Christ alone. This comes down to very practical stuff. How we treat people, how we view money, what our goals are, how we deal when, with, with offense when people offend us, how we deal with failure, how we deal with success, how and who we serve. I hope this isn't too crass a way to put it, but I think the big idea of this passage is there is no such thing as a Christian poser. You're on mission or you're not. And fire exists by burning as the church exists by mission.
Christians put their hope in Christ. They just do. Christians don't freak out over earthly things. <laughs> I shouldn't say this, but I'm good anyway. I heard somebody this week say, what if the Christian's goal for this election year was we're kind to people? What if our mission was even not getting our way and still being kind and still reflecting the love of Christ, even to our enemy? If I own a surfboard, but I never surf, am I a surfer? I'm just not. If I own a Bible, I grew up in a Christian home, but... Christ, after 50 years, has not grown kindness and grace in me. Am I a Christian? I think this is supposed to challenge us. More than give us an easy answer, I think this is supposed to challenge us. Are you, are you a Christian? You are. I trust you are. Your identity is your holy sibling. So this week, would you find somebody for, to forgive? And the less they deserve it, the better it would be. Are you a Christian? Then pick a character flaw and work on it. Do you struggle with obedience somewhere? Well, work on it. Try. Submit. Are you a Christian? Find some place you could extend grace. Buy somebody something. Pray for somebody. Have a kind word for somebody. If we are not burning, we are not fire. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, would you light us on fire? <laughs> Lord, I want to be a lighthouse. Lord, personally, I want to be a, a person who people can look at and see um, your grace, your mercy, your self-control coming out of me. Lord, I, I want that in, at the Combs house, and I want it at Lighthouse, Lord, that we would be a place that is so transformed in our identity as your, as your siblings even, that we have so taken the role of holy sibling, taken, been partakers of the shared calling, man, that the world would get better, that our behavior would change, that we would be those that are just obviously moving and breathing in you. So God, would you teach us to do it? In Jesus' name, amen.